kids workers. It's been a blessing to see over the past two years. When I first came to Arden first, we had Claire Evelyn and Zoe, and now we got a, a full kids department. So it's been a blessing to see all the new kids come and more kids coming each and every Sunday. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. If you'll go ahead and turn to chapter 7. There's also a listening guide in uh, your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. I was reminded of a story about an elderly lady that was walking into church late one Sunday. And there were plenty of seats available, but for some reason she wanted to sit on the very front row. And the usher said, ma'am, you really don't want to do that. She said, why not? Well, it's kind of the pastor is a little boring and people start to doze off. And when they're on the front row, it kind of discourages the pastor. And we don't want the pastor discouraged. So let's set you towards the back in case you nod off because we don't want that. And she said, well, do you know who I am? And he said, no, ma'am, I don't. I am the pastor's mother. And then the usher said, well, do you know who I am? And she said, no. And he said, good. (laughs) So have you ever struggled with being happy in your life? It seems like everyone around you is doing okay, but sometimes you don't feel okay. You don't feel like you're doing okay. Well, that's ever been the case. I want to encourage you to lean into God's word today because we all struggle at different times in our life. And today we're going to continue in the passage where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he's going to talk about wisdom's children. And the big question we're going to ask is, whose child are you? And when we look at your actions, what does that say about your heart? And I want to encourage you that people that pursue after happiness for happiness sake, have you ever noticed they end up unhappy? I was really saddened in the past few weeks with uh, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade and, you know, these very influential people, you know, taking their lives. And they had everything money could buy. They had fame. They traveled the world. They they had everything their hearts desired. But then they ended it all. And you look at Hollywood and the things that America chases after, you know, money, popularity, status, whatever it may be. And you see that they're not really happy. Those who chase after happiness aren't happy. Have you noticed that? And then you see God's children. You see wisdom's children. We're going to talk about in verse 35 how wisdom's children operates by a different standard. Instead of pursuing happiness, they pursue holiness. Instead of producing happiness, which is kind of shallow and superficial, they experience joy. So we're going to look in chapter 7, verse 28, and just a little context before we jump into the text. Last week, we talked about John the Baptist and how he had his doubts in prison. If you missed the message last week, I want to encourage you. It's, if you've ever suffered with doubt or discouragement or depression, you're in good company. Because John the Baptist, he baptized Jesus. He said that Jesus was the Messiah. He saw the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove. He heard the, the audible voice of God. And yet, experiencing the entire experience of Jesus' baptism in the Trinity, when John finds himself in prison, he begins to have doubts. Jesus, are you the one? And he didn't really know what was going on. So we pick up in verse 28, given that context. And this is Jesus talking. This is kind of the bridge verse to our passage. For I say to you, among those born of women, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, 
Even the tax collectors, they justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to another, saying, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We mourned to you, but you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But look at verse 35. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask and pray that you would speak to our hearts. And God, the big question we're asking today is what do my actions reveal about my heart? Am I wisdom's child or am I the world's child? Do I walk after godly wisdom or worldly values? So, Lord, as we talk about our hearts, speak to our hearts. Help us understand your word. And we pray that we'd leave forever changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today I'm going to give you kind of four snapshots into your heart. We're going to take kind of an EKG. We're going to look at your spiritual heart. And we're going to ask the questions, what do my actions reveal about my heart? And the past, really the past two years, one, one of the big takeaways um, I hope that you guys have gotten is the greatest way to change your life is to change your heart. If your heart changes, everything else flows from that. That's the major thing the scribes and Pharisees didn't get. They went after rules and regulations and restrictions, but the heart wasn't changed. And Jesus went straight for the heart and he said, love God, love people. And if you do that, everything will flow out of a changed heart. So today, the first snapshot I want to give you about your actions is this faithfulness and humility. First thing we see in the text is faithfulness and humility. God considers me great. When my life is full of faithfulness and humility. Look at verse 28. For I say to you, among those born of women, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So we we found out last week that John the Baptist was considered great. And in this context, John the Baptist is in prison. He's facing discouragement. He's having doubts. And Jesus is saying about John, even in his lowest point, I still consider him great. How can God consider John the Baptist great when he's having question marks? How can God consider him great when he's not being greatly used? He's in prison. I mean, he's no longer in the ministry field. He is in a sense. He's behind bars. His ministry is limited in some ways. But we know that God doesn't limit his work. Think about the Apostle Paul in prison. He still used him. But from John's perspective, I'm in prison. I'm no longer preaching in the wilderness, baptizing. I'm restricted. And Jesus is calling him great. Why could Jesus call him great? Well, I think two reasons why. Faithfulness and humility. God is looking for some faithful men and women. Faithfulness is being someone that you can count on. Faithfulness is obedience in the same direction over a long period of time. It's keeping on, keeping on. You know, people who run companies and businesses, one of their biggest complaints is it's hard to find faithful employees that will show up on time. Does anybody want a job these days? Anybody ever heard people talk about that? I can't hire any good employees. 
And it's because the culture we live in struggles with faithfulness. When you look at John the Baptist, he was faithful to the very end. And even though he was in prison, and even though he was getting ready to lay his life down for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ, God looked at him and said he's faithful. But also humility. You remember we talked about a few weeks ago, if you're humble, it'll keep you from the stumble. John the Baptist was so humble. You remember, I believe it was John 3.30, somewhere in that passage he said, Jesus must increase and I must what? Decrease. As soon as Jesus walks on the stage of ministry, John is ushered off the stage and ends up in prison. And I think from a spiritual perspective, John gets it, but I can only imagine. Imagine from a human perspective, I put Jesus first and now my ministry is no longer what it was. My ministry is now behind bars to the prisoners and whoever's around. And it's like I could see the discouragement. If you look at your listening guide, I have a few verses about humility. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. The thing about humility is if you don't humble yourself, God will. You have the choice. And I've been on the other side of the equation where God humbled me and it wasn't a pleasant sight. <laughs> God will usually humble you publicly or something will happen. And it's not, it's not fun. So make the choice to humble yourself. In Luke 14:11, it says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will what? Be exalted. So John the Baptist said, I must become less so that Jesus can be greater. And what did Jesus do? He exalted John and said, there is no greater man that's ever come from woman than John the Baptist, of course, apart from, apart from Christ. So humility is recognizing your smallness against the backdrop of God's greatness. His glory, his splendor, his majesty. When I realize how big God is, I realize how small I am. But you know what? The Bible says you're like a star in the universe. Whenever you allow the light of Christ to shine through you, you light up the dark night sky. And God wants us to shine no matter what situation we place ourselves, find ourselves in. So we have faithfulness and humility. Number two, we see repentance. I, can truly, I can't truly turn towards God until I first turn away from that which separates me from God. Look at verse 29. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors, they justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, what does it mean for the tax collectors to justify God? Don't, didn't they get it? Didn't we get that backwards? Doesn't God justify us? How can we justify God? Well, this term, for those of you who have been in the business world, you understand the word justify can mean different, different terms. There's, there's a thing turning your receipts in at the end of the month to justify your expenses. It means to prove that you actually did. So when it's saying that the tax collectors justified God, it's saying that they're testifying that whatever God says, what Jesus says is correct. What John the Baptist said is correct. I am agreeing, I'm lining up, just like you'd line up your expenses, they're justified. So that's, that's what that means. And what was John's baptism? It was a baptism of what? Repentance, right? So here's the thing. In our world today, we often get repentance wrong. I know as a, a young believer, I thought repentance was feeling sorry for my sin. In other words, whenever I did something wrong, I'd say, God, forgive me. But the next day, guess what? I would do it again. Have you ever been there? Is that true repentance? No, that's just the first step. So be, 
repentance, first of all, what it's not, it's not worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is feeling bad that you got caught. You guys remember, you know, there's different celebrities. I can name many, but you remember when Tiger Woods got caught, you know, for what he did. He's on TV and, you know, tears coming down and he goes through rehab. And guess what? All right, Tiger's back now. He went through his penance, you know, so he's okay. And that's kind of like worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is I got caught, so let me do whatever is going to seem okay, and then you guys accept me. But it's not just acknowledging that you've sinned while keep doing it. You know, I warn dating couples, I just did a wedding last night, and I warn dating couples, beware if you're dating someone and they keep messing up and they'll, you know, you confront them, oh, I'm so sorry I messed up, but they keep doing it. That's not repentance. That's like they got caught and I'm sorry. True repentance is a military term, and it's a change of mind with a change of action. It's an about face. So if I'm going this way in the world, I turn around and I go the other way. So I think sometimes in churches we do a disservice. We say, you know, confess your sin. That's true, but that's only the first step. You have to do an about face. So John the Baptist, when he came confessing, when he came confessing Christ and he told the people, he he preached a message and said, repent and believe the gospel. And guess what Jesus' message was? Repent and believe the gospel. I think the challenge with a lot of American churches is we say believe the gospel, but we don't talk about repentance. You can't turn towards God unless you turn from your sin. Amen. So here's the thing. When it comes to sin, whatever you cover, God uncovers. But whatever you uncover, God covers. You may say that again. Whatever you cover, God will uncover But whatever you uncover, God will cover. So in other words, when I confess my sin, I uncover it before God and others. He forgives it. His blood washes it away. But whenever I hide my sin and I I stay in my sin, eventually I'll be exposed. And I don't know about you, but I would rather God to cover and take it away than for it to be exposed down the road. Amen or ouch. Number three, we talked about godly wisdom. Now we're going to talk about The world's children, what they look like, pride and position. As long as I seek to be the king of my life, I can never embrace Jesus as king. Pride and position. Look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So you have two contrasts, the the so-called sinners, the tax collectors, um, the people that everyone knew was in sin, They said, I repent, I'm turning from this. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day said, I don't need, that's for them. That's for the very bad people. We're we're okay. And they rejected God's will because John the Baptist said, you need to repent. But here's the thing. This is kind of an evangelism secret. You cannot get anyone saved until they first realize they're lost. Have you ever realized that? No one can invite Jesus into their life and ask for forgiveness until they realize they're lost. And the Holy Spirit obviously does the convicting, but you, you cannot lead someone to Christ until they first realize they have a problem. And as long as they think they're okay, as long as they're happy in their sin and they're not willing to change, it, it's going to take God to work on their hearts. So here's the question. Why did the Pharisees reject God's will? I mean, what were they thinking? If we do a, a psychoanalysis of their, their, their minds, their hearts, I think we'll come to a few conclusions. This is on your listening guide. Six things, a lot of this comes from Matthew 23 when Jesus rebukes them, but they love power too much. 
Have you ever heard the saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely? They didn't want to let go of their power. And when they saw that to follow Jesus means to release my power, uh, yeah, I don't think so. There must be another way. Number two, they found it easier to tell people what to do instead of doing it themselves. You ever met someone that's a spiritual CEO? <laughs> they, they like giving out, here's what you got to do, and orders, but they're not willing to do it themselves. And it's like the Pharisees, they would tell people a lot of good things to do, but Jesus said, many of these things you're not doing yourselves. That's the idea of a hypocrite. Number three, they enjoyed their high position and they didn't want to give up to Jesus because as long as I'm in authority and I'm king, I realize that Jesus is claiming to be a king. So if I give my life to him, guess what? I can't be king anymore. And that's really hard. That's a hard pill to swallow. Number four, they love the praise of people more than the praise of God. And I know there's no one at Arden First that struggles with being a people pleaser. You know, you... You worry what people think and what they're going to say. And, yeah, I know I should do this, but what is this person going to think? I, don't, I know none of us struggle with that, right? I think we all struggle with it. And the thing is, is if we look in our own hearts, we, we may have a little Pharisee in us. I mean, if we really look at it, do we, do we like the praise of people? And I love it. was Max Lucado. He wrote a book about the applause of heaven. You know, we are living not for the applause of people. But we're living for the applause of heaven. That's it. It doesn't matter what others say or do. What matters is what Jesus thinks of us. Number five, they cared more about one's outward appearance than one's inward reality. We talked about the 930 service. Uh, you ever notice the saying or remember the saying, you can't judge a book by what? It's cover. And that includes both sides. People say, well, you know, people that are kind of plain, you don't know what's inside. It's true. So don't judge them. But also if someone's on the other side, attractive and got it together, doesn't mean they're bad either. So don't judge a book by its cover on either side. So here's what I want to encourage you. The scribes and Pharisees would look by outward appearance, but Jesus would look at the heart. So when you look at somebody, don't look at just mere externals. Try to look a little deeper. Try to see their heart. And how do you know what their heart's like? Listen to their words. The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. So if you are around people, listen to their words, and their words are a trail to their heart. So John's baptism, as we mentioned, was a baptism of repentance. And as long as the, the scribes and Pharisees, these religious teachers, were, didn't realize their need for sin, they rejected John's baptism. They rejected Jesus. And as long as we hold on to our personal pride, our prestige, whatever it may be, we're going to miss out on God's blessings for our life. So don't let pride and position get in the way. Amen. Number four, a critical eye and a calloused heart. So not only do the world's children have go after pride and position, but the world's children has a critical eye and a calloused heart. Whenever I see others through a critical eye or a calloused heart, I always project my brokenness onto them. All right, let's go into verse 31. This is where Jesus gives us a parable here. The Lord said, to what shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another. One scholar called this the parable of the brats. I thought that was really creative. The parable of the brats. 
You know how brats are. They will kind of mimic one another and call out to each other and sometimes cause a disturbance. See, here you have a group of children. And children typically mimic the big events in life. So what would you say are the two biggest events that you've been to? One I mentioned last night. I went to a wedding. And the other one would be a funeral, right? So the wedding is full of joy and celebration. People are talking, socializing. They're having great food. They're having great fellowship. It's a good time. A funeral, if you have that kind of attitude, people will be like, you're being irreverent. You know, it's like it's a dirge song. It's different. So what Jesus does is he likens this, this analogy to children. And the first group of children playing, and all of a sudden the people don't dance. And then you look at the other group of children playing, and the people don't mourn. And what parallel is Jesus drawing here of these children in the marketplace? Well, the parallel he's drawing is two different ministries. The first ministry is John the Baptist. Look look at verse number 33. The John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. So here's the funny thing. John the Baptist, he was gluten-free. Anybody gluten-free? He would have got well and along well in Asheville. He didn't eat bread and he didn't drink wine. So the best, best person, one, one pastor I heard said he was kind of like a hippie Southern Baptist. He didn't drink and he was gluten free. <laughs> so, and then Jesus comes and I want to read the words of Christ so you get to get the contrast here. Jesus comes, the son of man came, he came eating and drinking. And you say, look, a, a glutton and a wine member, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So what Jesus is doing is giving analogy. You have these children. You can kind of get the imagery of marketplace children. And the people that aren't dancing are kind of illustrative of the Pharisees and scribes. So you would think the scribes and Pharisees. So you might remember how many rules they had. 613. So they had 613 rules. They would probably line up more with John the Baptist, right? Because John the Baptist, I mean, no drinking, no dancing. I mean, he was like, he had every Baptist line crawl. I mean, he had it down. And, uh, and they're like, he's demon-possessed. It's like, if you're going to like anyone's ministry, John the Baptist was the most conservative, straight-laced, bible belief. I mean, he had it down. I mean, he would be the ideal Southern Baptist poster. I mean, he was per. I mean, just, he wasn't perfect, but you get what I'm saying. Jesus, on the other hand, he was kind of free-spirited. Um, he was invited to all these parties. He's hanging out with people feasting. And they definitely didn't like that. And so they said, John the Baptist is demon-possessed. And Jesus, he says, you're a glutton and you're a wine-bibber. So whatever Jesus did in moderation, they accused him of excess. And we know Jesus obviously never sinned. So here, here, here's a scenario that people you'll never please. You ever heard the saying, you'll never please all the people all the time? So here's the thing. For those of you involved in any sort of ministry, uh, the children's workers, Sunday school teachers, whatever you do in the church, you'll never please all the people all the time. If you're very straight-laced and conservative like John the Baptist, guess what? People say, man, they're this or this. If you're kind of free-spirited and you know, you're jovial, people still have issues. So here's the bottom line. Be the person God made you to be. Jesus was perfect. John the Baptist wasn't. Their ministries are completely contrasted, but God used them greatly. Amen. It was reminding me of a story a while back. I may I believe I shared this, but 
It's very applicable to this. There was a pastor that it was somewhere up north and it was snowing and he was trying to make it to church. But all the roads were closed. And you know how the faithful few always make it when even when the church is like closed, they're they're showing up. So he's like, I got to make it. Who's going to preach a sermon? So he can't he can't get there anyway. The only way he get is through skating on the frozen pond. So he starts skating a few miles up the pond to the church. And when he gets there, he's greeted by his deacons. And they're like, we were wondering where you're coming, but what are you doing skating? You know it's unlawful to work on the Sabbath day. Skating, man, that's a lot of exercise. And he's like, well, I'm just trying to make it to church. So they, they went through the service, and they called a special deacons meeting after the service. And they had a vote to whether he actually sinned or not, whether he violated the Sabbath. And they were kind of split. The deacons were kind of split 50-50. So they finally, one person asked the question to solve the matter. He said, did you enjoy it? And the pastor said, no, I mean, I didn't enjoy it. Okay, you did not sin. Case dismissed. So that illustration is like legalism. You know, we, we try to characterize things, and sometimes we miss what God is really trying to tell us. So John the Baptist and Jesus. You know, a few things to think about is there's always going to be things in life that are challenging. You look at Jesus, he lived the perfect life, and did he please people? A lot of, I mean, they killed him, right? John the Baptist was dedicated all his life to God. He lived in the wilderness in isolation. Did people like him? I mean, the, 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 the populace did, but the, the scribes and Pharisees didn't. So I came across this by Driscoll. I thought this was really good. He said there's six types of critics, and maybe this will help you with your job. You know, for, for those of you who have critics in your life as a Christian, Some of these will be more applicable than others. But the first one is theological critics, those who disagree with your Christian beliefs. Did you know that as soon as you become a Christian, you have automatically isolated every other world religion? Because Christianity claims to be the only way. So if you say, I'm a Christian, you've isolated every other religion in the world. (laughs) And also the Mormons aren't going to like you. The Jehovah's Witnesses aren't going to like you. And and down further, if you say, I'm a Bible-believing, born-again Christian... Guess what? A lot of people who claim to be a Christian aren't going to like you. So you've isolated. So how do you resolve the theological critics? Well, you can't win them all, but you've got to look at yourself. Do I line up to the Bible? Am I lining up with God's word? Because God's word's the only sole authority. I mean, people are not the authority. And here's the thing. The reason why we don't water it down to Arden first is the power is in God's word. And if you water down the word, you're watering down the power of God in your life. And we want all of God's power. Amen. You also have not only theological critics, but jealousy of success critics. So for those of you who are working, those of you who are retired and things are going well, you will have people in your life that will say this statement. See if you've ever heard this. It must be nice. How do you how do you deal with that? Like God's blessed you and you're enjoying the blessings and they're like they're critical. The only way I would say is try to affirm them by serving them. You silence a lot of critics when you serve them and you affirm them by saying, listen, I just want God's best for your life. And we've often talked about it, how there's two mindsets. There's the poverty mindset, and then there's the blessing mindset. The poverty mindset is like this. There's only one pizza, and you have to fight for your piece of the pie. If you have a bigger slice than mine, you you just stole from me, and I'm going to go after your slice. That's the poverty mentality. Fight for for what's yours. The blessing mentality is Matthew 4.4. God gives us each your daily bread. So listen, your, your bread looks different than mine. But you, you can try to take mine, but guess what? God will give me new bread tomorrow. He'll, he'll, he'll replace what you try to steal. 
So when it comes to success critics, you can't, you can't worry. Only God is the one who you need his applause. What about, number three, those who are misinformed? So you have theological critics, those who are jealousy of success, those who are misinformed. These are critics who have the wrong information about you. Have you ever had someone that maybe on the job or in a family situation, they heard a rumor that wasn't true about you? And you're like, where did you hear that? No, that's not what happened. Well, how do you resolve that? It's called clarifying. Now, if what, what they said was true, I could see why you're upset, but this didn't happen. Here's the truth. Number four, you have personal dislike. And by the way, this is not in your listening guide. This is just bonus. Personal dislike. These are people who don't like your style. Because, you know, they're such a good Christian, you should model the way they look, dress, and act in every way. And if you don't, you're out of bounds. Have you ever met anybody like that? Just because you're not like them in style, it's just, it's a preference. It's not a sin issue, it's a preference. Now, number five, there is legitimate sin. You made a mistake and you blew it. But what do you do about the critics that hold something over your head that you did in the past? Like, I remember ten years ago, you did X, Y, Z, and you're like, man, I've already repented. I've asked God, but I remember. Are the people, you ever run into someone you went to high school with, and they said, I remember when you were in high school. And you're some Christian now? (laughs) Some of you are like, yeah. Well, those are critics that are hard to dissolve. The only thing I could say is, maybe you throw this at them, is, you know, the only two people that remember my sin are the devil and, and other people of the world. But God has forgiven me. Which one do you want to be more like? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, number six, uh, someone that takes up offense for another person. This is the middleman. You ever been in a family argument or debate and then someone gets in the middle and they side with someone else and now you're having to deal with two people instead of just one? This is the meddler, the middle person. The Bible says in Matthew 18, you deal with it one-on-one. And if you bring someone, bring someone that's going to be someone that works for reconciliation, not him versus her type situation. So looking at the text, um, do you think that there was a theological critics in Jesus' life in John the Baptist? You think the scribes and Pharisees just theologically, they're like, you're, you're preaching grace and truth. All we know is law. We don't get it. You think there was jealousy of success for Jesus, John the Baptist, whenever their ministries blew up, all of a sudden the scribes and Pharisees are like, okay, they just followed Jesus and to use Facebook terms, now I'm unfollowed. You've unfollowed me. That's not right. Misinformed. In this scripture, what did they say about John the Baptist? They say he is what? Demon possessed. Do you think that was a little bit misinformation? All they had to do is ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you think about John? And then Jesus says he's the greatest prophet. So they went from greatest prophet to he's demon possessed. Okay. What about misinformed about Jesus? He's hanging out at parties and they said, well, because he's with sinners, it must mean birds of a feather flock together. See, I could throw out any name and there's going to be a division among, okay, among the interpretation. Billy Graham. How many of you were one to Christ with Billy Graham? Raise your hand. Crusade, conference. Okay, I see some, see some hands in the back. So here's the thing. Some will be like, Billy Graham's amazing, but then there's someone on the other side. Will, you remember that crusade Billy Graham did? Did you see that liberal pastor on stage with him? Or did you remember what he said? I mean, there's critics that will, even Billy Graham. Um, I, I can throw out any name in Christendom, and there's people on both sides. So here's the thing. Jesus and John the Baptist, they knew it, and it happens today. Um, legitimate sin, Jesus never committed any sin, and yet people accused him of it. John the Baptist was imperfect, but yet people went to the furthest extreme. Like, he is 
forgiven and he is human, yet he yells in the wilderness, so maybe because he's a yeller and a screamer and eats bugs and honey, he must be demon-possessed. You see the conclusion? Okay, he lives by himself, he's isolated, and he eats bugs. He's demon-possessed. You see the logic? Very misinformation. So, Jesus, to kind of wrap this up, in verse 35, he says something very interesting. This is his conclusion. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, who are wisdom's children? Like Jesus, you talked about children in the marketplace. And we, we jokingly said these could be like, you think about brats calling back and forth and you get the imagery there. But what does it mean wisdom is justified by their, all her children? It means that your actions are a trail to your heart. If, if you look at someone's actions, it, 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 it sends a message about who they are as a person. So kind of reviewing wisdom's children, their actions and their character traits are faithfulness, humility, and repentance. Faithfulness, doing the right thing, being consistent and stable. Repentance, a change of mind with a change of action. Humility. As we said before, we quoted Rick Warren, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's realizing it's not all about me. One of the things, um, I just married uh, Kirby's son, Kevin and Stephanie last night, and one of the challenges I gave them is the I am third saying. If you want a successful marriage, I am third. It's Jesus first and center, my spouse second, and then I'm third. I guarantee if each spouse does that, you will be married forever. There's no divorce in that type of marriage if you're third. Jesus, my spouse, and then me. So, wisdom's children, faithfulness, humility, and repentance. What about the world's children, worldly children? We talked about that they hold on to pride and position. As long as I'm holding on to pride and position, it's hard for me to to allow Jesus to be king of my life. Uh, We talked about how they have a clouded eye and a calloused heart. In psychology, they call it projection. You ever met somebody that's struggling with something and they project that very thing onto you? Like they may be struggling with hate and they're like, man, you just seem so upset. I'm like, I'm calm. <laughs> it's like you're projecting. Or they're struggling with like maybe pride and they think you're prideful. And what it is, the thing that you're the most adamant against is usually the thing that you struggle the most with. And that's the thing is like, listen to people's, what are they talking about? Listen to their words. And that's kind of like a little pastor cue for those of you in ministry and, you know, is the people that are so passionate about, we need to be against this or we need to go after this. A lot of times that's the very thing they struggle with. A lot of times. So be careful about having a critical eye. Because here's the thing. If you're looking for faults, you're going to find it everywhere you look. If you're looking for God's grace and God's potential, you're going to see it everywhere. Because how you see the world and how you see others says more about you than the world and the others you see. Because you see it through the lens that you possess. So look at Jesus. Whenever he saw people, did he see tax collector and sinners? Or did he see people that were in need of God's grace and that could be forgiven, that could be changed? When you saw John the Baptist, he saw people that were coming for repentance, a change of life. But when the Pharisees saw them, all they saw was their sin. All they saw were their problems. They didn't see the potential of God in their life. When you see people, do you just see problems or do you see potential? Um, I remember a story about D.L. Moody. This has uh, kind of struck me. He was a uh, you know, great evangelist. We talk about him a lot. But one of the things is he was criticized by this person about his way of doing evangelism. 
And D.L. Moody was trying to be humble. He said, listen, I'm open to critique. If you want to share a little bit about how you do evangelism, you know, I know my style is different. I'd be, I'd be happy to learn from you. How do you win someone to Christ? How many have you led to Christ? And the guy said, well, I've never led a person to Christ. And D.L. Moody said, well, I like my style better than yours. <laughs> so, so in conclusion, your actions reveal your heart. If I could just summarize this into one sentence, this is on your listening guide. My daily walk reveals the condition of my heart before God and others. So here's the thing. God's children, those who are characterized by wisdom, it's going to show. You're going to walk in humility. You're going to be faithful. You're going to be a person that repents. And by the way, uh, some of you may have been taught by the end of every day, confess your sins. Why wait till the end of the day? Confess as soon as God convicts you of it. And worldly children are those who are calloused and critical. Those who hold on to pride and position, that never works. So just a closing thoughts, and then we will pray. I was reading this today, and I thought it was really applicable. The devil has a plan for your life. The first thing is to doubt, to question God's very word and his goodness. Doubt. The second is discouragement, to make you look at your problems rather than at God. Did you realize that if you focus on your problems, you will get discouraged? So for those of us who are discouraged, the question I ask, are you looking at your problems or are you looking at God? The devil will send you diversion to make the wrong thing seem so attractive that it will divert you from God's plan. Defeat to make you feel like a failure so you don't even try. You say, what's the use? I'm just giving up. Or delay. This is, I think most of us deal with this. To make you put off doing something so that it never gets done. And do not hit your husband next to you. <laughs> Delay. So to wrap this up, my heart for Arden First is that we will walk in wisdom. So that when people look at us, they'll say, you know, that's a woman of faithfulness. That's a man of humility. You know, they don't have it all together, but they're a person who repents. And God is going to help us. And he's going to grow us. And he's going to transform us. Let us pray. Father... Your word is challenging. Every Sunday we, we open the text up and we thank you for your word. Every week it gives us something new and something to change. So, Father, I just pray that you would search the hearts and the minds of each person here. Speak to us, God, what we need to do. As we continue to pray, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand for this, but if you struggle with being critical of seeing the worst in people instead of seeing the best in people, and today you've seen through Scripture that both John and Jesus was criticized and it was because they had different style. If you would just say something like this, Jesus, I'm sorry for being critical of others, trying to do your work. I know they may do it differently than me, but I want to just realize that you, you used John the Baptist. You used others that were different. And Lord, I thank you that you can use me. So forgive me for being critical. For those of you who are sitting on the sidelines and you realize that you need to step up and serve, just say a prayer like this. God, I know it's time to get in the game. I know it's time to serve. Please help me not to delay or procrastinate in doing your will. And if there be one today that you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we've talked about repentance. We've talked about you cannot fully turn to God unless you turn from your sin. So it's not just a matter of praying words or believing a certain thing. That's the start. But if you really want to give your life to Christ, you have to repent and believe the gospel. So if you've never done that, right where you're sitting, to say this, Jesus, 
I realize today that it's not just feeling sorry for my sin. That's worldly sorrow. I realize today that it's turning from my sin and turning to you. So Jesus, I realize I need to be a new person. And I'm sorry for my sin and I'm willing to turn from my sin. Please forgive me. Jesus, I make you my Lord, my Savior. I invite you into my life and I ask you to change my life. I'm making about face. I turn from the world and its ways and I turn to you and your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time we're going to have our closing song. If you'd please stand. I'll be at the front, Miss Judy. We're the prayer team. We'd love to pray with you if you have a need. You know, today's invitation is simple. If you want to walk in wisdom, if you have someone in your life that's not living wisely and you just want to kneel and pray for them, if you have someone that's struggling in your life, you can pray for them. And at this time, we'll respond as the Lord leads.